Um, let's get a few things straight, okay? Being an American doesn't make you biblical. <laughs> it's the other way around. We need biblical citizens. We need people who will follow the Bible more than they will a political party. We need people who will study the Word of God more than the latest conspiracy threats. We need to study the Word of God, and we need to confirm what the Word of God says uh, with our neighbors and with our culture. We're concerned about the Bible. We belong to one kingdom, the kingdom of God. And though we're Americans, we want to bring the kingdom of God into that American dream that was once had. And so we're going to take a look at what it means to be biblical citizens and shape this culture and shape this society to be more biblical, more than we've ever been. All right? America has never been to the place it needed to be biblically. Can I get an amen on that? Could, can, can I get that? You know, uh, let's make it real clear, all right? The, the America that used to be and those good old days were not good for everybody, okay? We weren't biblical enough to what was on the paper. Uh, so that's what we're going to study what was written in the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, as a vision and a dream, we've not reached it yet. But why quit on it? If we have enough biblical people, we can fulfill that dream. Amen? Write what was wrong and go forward. So I've given you what we're going to be studying is, comes from the Patriot Academy. You can go online and check them out. You can subscribe to them and get their uh, videos and, and so forth. Um, so that's what we're going to watch, some, uh, a couple videos on Wednesdays. I'm going to interrupt them so that we can have some communication going on so that you're not just literally sitting watching a screen. So I've also uh, given you some outlines to fill in the blanks so that you don't fall asleep. A little bit of a lecture here. So let's take a look and see uh, what's going to happen. Let's switch screens at this time and uh, see if that thing will kick in. No? There we go. I think biblical citizenship as a Christian would be stewardship. That God has given us this republic to be stewards over. And you begin to love what God loves and hate what he hates in the scriptures because your heart is lining up with the heart of God because of the gospel. If you're a Christian, a person of faith, you must care about what's happening in our culture. You must get involved in voting. Biblical principles are what produce freedom of society, but you won't have biblical principles in society in which you don't have citizens with a biblical worldview. The further we move away from biblical principles, the further we move away from liberty and freedom. As people are experiencing tyranny, we, they're asking why, what has happened, and there's just this feeling of being lost right now and not knowing where to turn. And you just gave us the foundation. This is truth. Biblical citizenship, that's a phrase that brings two reactions. On the one hand are those that say, of course, naturally, that's what we're supposed to do huh. as Christians. Worked but earlier. Also it's not working now. Anyways, um, that's just a little bit of an introduction. We're going to get into a lecture here by David Barton, and he talks fast. So you really got to listen and pay attention, okay? 
Um, earlier today, I tried this out and it worked. I could pause when I wanted to and start when I wanted to, and now it's not. Beside this banana. Oh, I just have to hold it up. All right. So uh, we're going to start the first lecture, and uh, this page right here, this paper, is going to be your outline, and we'll follow through it and have some discussion in the midst of it. So uh, take a listen. Is it loud enough out there? Yeah? A little more. Can you have more volume on the video so the people in the back can hear it? For decades and even centuries, it says, you know, Christians should not get involved in government, shouldn't get involved in those kind of affairs, should be only in spiritual affairs. So really, what is the right perspective, and what can we look at that will help us understand our responsibility as Christians today with civil government? Best thing to see is what's the biblical foundation for the concept. So let's go back to the very beginning. If you go back to the beginning, look at the beginning, a great place to start is the book of Genesis. Genesis is often known as the seed plot of the Bible because every single major teaching that we believe as people of faith, as Christians, goes back to the book of Genesis. So when you go back and look at the beginning of Genesis, and it does say, in the beginning, let's see how things began. You have, in the beginning, God. And you start with God, and we see that God made creation and He made man. Now, once He makes man, you start seeing the beginnings of government. First form of government is self-government. We're supposed to govern ourselves. But we also see that in the first three chapters of Genesis, God takes man and puts him with woman, and they have children, and so you have family. This is the concept of family government. This is the first thing that we see in the Bible in, in the area of corporate government beyond civil government. The next thing we find is in Genesis 9, we have the beginning of civil government. This is where God steps in and says, okay, here's what you're going to do with murderers. Here's what you do with thieves. He starts laying down laws for civil government that came from God. That's in Genesis. That's the second form of government, third type of government, because self-government, family government, and civil government the last you see is what we would call church government. This is where God gets them together and say, okay, let's have a congregation. Here's how you're going to worship me. Here's your relationships. We can call that church, but it comes after civil and it comes after family government. It's the third institution. So when you look at, at Genesis, you say that, yeah, God is in the civil government. He actually gave us civil government before he gave us church government. So there is a biblical foundation for, for saying that God's people should be involved in that. Now, when you look at it, what you have is these three separate forms of government, types of government, and they all are very separate and very distinct. There, there's areas that only they are to do. For example, if you look at the area of family, we're told in Ephesians 5 and 6 that it is the family who is to raise up children. It's not the government's responsibility to raise children. It's not the church's responsibility to raise children. They can help cooperate and support, but God says, parents, it's your responsibility to raise your kids. So that's something that's given only to that area. He did not give that responsibility to the other two areas. In the same way with civil government, we see that God gives them the sword of civil justice. They're to punish the wicked doers and reward the righteous, but only government gets that sword. Now there's swords of self-defense, and we can have self-defense in family or church or whatever, but when the church picks up the sword of civil government and starts punishing wrongdoers, that's where you get into the atrocities we see back in the Middle Ages with the Inquisition and the Crusades, etc. So the sword of civil government is given only to civil government. That, that's all it belongs to. He doesn't give it to anybody else. Same way with the church. We're told in Ephesians 4, the church is to raise up saints and train them for work of ministry. It's not parents who are supposed to train the saints for work of ministry. It's not the government who trains saints for the work of ministry. That's something that goes strictly to that area. So when you look at the Bible, you have these three institutions, and God says, okay, here's what you guys do, here's what you guys do, here's what you guys do. So there are distinct areas that they're supposed to do. But because man's involved in it, 
you can't have them completely isolated, completely separated. If I'm involved in civil government, I'm going to be involved in my family, I'm going to be involved in my church, you really can't isolate them all and say, wait a minute, I've got to put on a different hat and move over here. I'm going to flow between the three. And so because I do that, you have to understand that they're not completely isolated, even though they're separate spheres, and there's ways that they can cooperate together. For example, if you take the area of family, and I'm involved in, in family, and if I loop that with civil government, there's areas that government's supposed to do, areas that family's supposed to do, but there's areas where they can cooperate. Now, what is it that family and government can cooperate through? What would help both of them if they both worked on this area? One answer is strong families. If government works to build strong families and family works to build strong families, they both benefit from that without violating their jurisdictional separation. Now, this is not saying that governments create strong families because they don't, but they can create an environment that helps families be strong, which is going to help government as a benefit. So it's not government's responsibility to create strong families, it's their responsibility not to damage what the family is supposed to do with its own family, and that means creating an atmosphere for good policies. If you look at the area of family and church, what benefits both of them? Well, quite frankly, having strong Christians benefits both. If the family works on having strong Christians, that helps the church. And if the church works on having strong Christians, that helps the family. And neither one has violated the jurisdiction of the other. In the same way, if you take church and government, now we often hear this as church and state, I thought they're supposed to be separate. Well, they are. They are separate institutions, but there are things they can do to cooperate. What would benefit both of them? What, what could you get church and government both working on that would help both of them? And the answer is building strong citizens. Now, this is why we teach civics and government and math and science and so many other things. You want educated citizens, you want strong citizens, you want citizens who know how the process works. And interestingly, when you look at strong citizens, one of the best ways to have strong citizens was actually given by the founding fathers years ago. And there's so many founders we could choose from, but I'm going to choose Daniel Webster as the example. This is what Daniel Webster said, great defender of the Constitution. He said, whatever makes men good Christians makes them good citizens. And that's true. It's not the good Christians that the police have to arrest for drive-by shootings or violence or all, all sorts of abuse. And good Christians make good citizens, but those two things do go together. And that's something where the actually church and state can cooperate is in building strong citizens. And again, it's government that provides the atmosphere for that to occur. Government doesn't do it, they just provide the atmosphere. So you have all of these institutions and they do have cooperative functions. They, they do have things they can do together. Now, Going back to Genesis as a seed plot, let's take another step. All right, we've seen kind of how that there's institutions and God created all of them and he gave jurisdictions to all of them. He gave responsibilities to all of them. They can. All right. Dude talks fast, doesn't he? So let's get this. I mean, we're here to learn. So I want to make sure that we're not just watching a video, but we're talking about it. So the seed plot in Genesis, what was the first governing uh, aspect that God gave? Self. So let's start there with you, with me. How are you doing on that? Is, are you ruling life or is life ruling you? Is your house in order? So self-governing means I have to take control over my flesh. God gave us his Holy Spirit within us so that we can regulate the flesh right? Fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And so we need to take care of our health and our body and our thoughts, what we put in, what we put out. You are self-governing. God does not do that for you. How many of you learned that? 
all right? He gave you the responsibility to govern yourself. He is there to help you. So I, I think that this is brilliant and this is scripture. So what are the three other institutions of government that God ordained? Family, civil, and church. Civil means secular or, or the, the whole of a society and a culture, right? Not everybody in America is saved, all right? And, and, but yet there is a civil government that's running the rules, okay? So he shows us how each one of these together can build a strong nation. And that's what was the glory of the United States at one point. Now, strong families. To destroy a nation, take out families, right? Start destroying family structure and you're going to destroy the church. Start destroying the church and so any one of these out of whack is going to create a problem, right? And anyone, as he said, where one infiltrates the other, all right? I like this point where he said uh, with the civil government, they have the authority of the sword. We saw in the Middle Ages when, when the church had the ability of the sword, what did they do? Right? They were punishing people and uh, killing people in the name of Christ. And uh, that was a dark day for the church, wasn't it? Okay. All right. So I just want to make sure that you understand those three governments, how they're supposed to function, and how they should flourish. And you as Christians are going to be an asset to this nation and to civil government because you're handling your own family and you're handling, you're growing in the church, the church is flourishing, and the church, because all of us are ingrained and out into the world, we're not of the world, but we're out there, we should be ministering to the world the gospel of Jesus and living upright moral lives. Amen? You with me so far? You with David Barton so far? All right, let's see what else he's got. Cooperate, which means we as individual citizens can and should be involved in that. But let's go back to the beginning at the creation. When you look at the creation, it's told in two places. You have the creation told in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. And as you see, all the creation, how it develops, he separates the waters above from the waters below, and he separates the firmament. It puts a greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He creates the oceans and all that are in it, and then the land and the plants and the animals. And he goes through all of it. We finally get to man. And a good question to ask is, why did God create man? Because we know that God created man. He tells us that. The question is, why did he create man? And this is a good time to say, okay, what does the Bible say about that? And an uh, answer we've heard since 1646, this is when the Scottish Shorter Catechism came out, which really affected theology in the Protestant church realm. The, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's a really good purpose. I mean, that, there's, that's sound. Big question to ask is, okay, what does the Bible say? Can you show me a Bible verse that says that is why God created man? Well, that is something man should be doing, no question. But when you look, that's not what the book of Genesis tells us about why God created man. When you look in Genesis to see why, you go back to those two chapters. And when you look at the two chapters, after God's gone through everything in the six days and he's got it all created, we're told in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 15, starting first with verse 5, it said, God looked at all he had created, and it was very good, and then he saw that he had no one to tend his garden, so he made man. It's interesting. Man's purpose was to take care of God's stuff. 
God had created all this stuff. He didn't have anybody to take care of it for him. And so we're told in Genesis verse 15 that once God put man in the garden, man tended the garden. What we see in Genesis is very similar to what Jesus told us in Luke 19, 13 about tending the garden. Because you remember there in Luke 19, 13, Jesus says, you need to do business. You, you need to do, be, be about doing things till I get back. So taking care of the garden, tending the business, Old Testament, New Testament, we get it. And it's interesting that when you look today, this is kind of in what's described as a seven mountains kind of thing. Because what is the Lord's? What is His garden? What we're told in the Scriptures, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, everything in it. Today we say, well, that includes entertainment and education and media and religion and family and government and business. We're supposed to be taking care of His stuff in all of these areas. And say, so we've gotten out of so many of them. I mean, even entertainment. Did you know that until 1968, Hollywood couldn't come out with a movie unless church leaders signed off on it. And the church said, oh, we shouldn't be doing that secular stuff. Let's get out of entertainment. How has that worked out over the years? I mean, what a, we recently came across an archive of 17 letters back when they did the, the Academy Award winning movie, uh, Gone with the Wind. 17 letters going back and forth over whether they should use the one word, damn, in the movie. Rhett Butler, as he leaves, frankly, my dear, I don't give a... They had a massive outcry. You can't use a curse word in a movie. Oh my goodness, look how far we've come. But see, we used to be involved in all these, education, uh, all of these areas, and, and so we've gotten out of them, and how's that working out for us? We've gotten out of government. That, hey, that's, that's one of parts of his garden we're supposed to be taking care of. So there is a biblical mandate, a biblical responsibility to do this. So civil government's one of those areas where to... to all right, I want to focus on this a little bit. Pastor Ron and myself, we've just spent the last week with... Uh, going to hear Lance Wallnow uh, discuss the Seven Mountain um, process. And, and could you put the slide up uh, so you'll have to switch? Uh, yeah. Let's talk about the Seven Mountain Mandate, okay? So the concept, Bill Bright um, and Lauren Cunningham, two of the largest leaders of youth movements, uh, in the United States years ago, people were telling him, you two need to get together. You've got the largest Baptist youth group movement with Bill Bright. You've got the largest Pentecostal youth movement with missions uh, with Lauren Cunningham. And so they, they fasted and prayed and they met for lunch. And when they began to share what God had showed them, they wrote out what they saw individually and they came together and, and paired up the exact same vision that they had and that was that the the earth and the fullness thereof are made of seven spheres of influence in civil government you have arts and entertainment you have business education family government media and religion everybody's trying to make one big mountain uh, to rule over all of them and that's not going to happen what you need to do and what the church needs to do is to, in a sense, um, seed and bring the gospel into each sphere of influence. That way, we're impacting our culture and our society. He used the example of entertainment, right? The arts and entertainment are, 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 is what speaks to 
a generation. Business is what finances a generation. Education is what trains a people. Family is what builds structure. Government keeps uh, sanity and safeness in a culture. Media is supposed to speak what is true and information, and the church should guide uh, the, the culture as well as to what is honorable to God. Now, either the gospel is going to lead this, either Christ is going to transform a culture, or who's left? The world, but ultimately the devil. How many of you remember the temptation, and what did Jesus say I'm sorry, what did Satan say to Jesus? If you bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms. What right did the devil have to give Jesus the kingdoms? He's the one who made everything. But the kingdoms had forfeited themselves over to the satanic mindset and to the thinking. The ideologies that permeate a culture. If it's not biblical, it's going to be satanic. There's no gray area. So if we're not infiltrating, if we're retreating from the arts and entertainment, if we're retreating from business, if we're retreating from education and family and government and media, staying on our own little mountain, what's going to happen? I mean, just put it on a scale. Darkness is going to pervade a culture. And you can see it through history. All right? This isn't rocket science. This is Bible 101. So many of you, there's what's called the, the um, where, where everyone is anointed, the priesthood of all believers, that if you're a garbage man, do that to the glory of God and be a Christian garbage man and minister to the people you're working with and to whatever company you work for. Some of you are business people. Do it as unto the Lord and bring in kingdom principles. You'll transform the business world. Bring it into media or education, right? We need more of you involved in media. More of you involved in entertainment. We need more of you involved in, as teachers in education. Right now, the education system's so bad, all the Christians are pulling their kids out of public school, putting them into private. I get it. I understand. But if we're not going to be impacting the education system, it's going to get worse and worse. And so we have to stand our ground. And so we have to begin to bring in the gospel wherever you are and wherever you work. Amen? Pastor Ron, do you want to add anything to this? I mean, we could be preaching this for a long time. Pastor Ron's been studying the Seven Mountain Mandate for years. Thanks. Yeah, I just want to um, add that uh, not only is this theory, but it's it's very practical. So. Many of you know I worked at GM for 25 years, and um, morale was at an all-time low, and some of us Christians got together and said, we got to do something about this and become a solution to the problem. So we began to pray in earnest, and we began to form Bible studies and prayer groups all over the campus of the GM Tech Center. And from there, it launched into every uh, assembly plant, every technical center, 
every engineering center worldwide where we had um, actual uh, grid, an Excel spreadsheet of wherever you were traveling for GM business, you could find where the Bible studies and the prayer groups were. And we started almost literally having micro churches within the facility where people were getting healed and delivered and saved. And so we were actually taking the business mountain. And many of the launches that we were on and uh, contracts that we were over, we would take them into our prayer room and pray over them. And roadblocks that were taking forever to get through would be broken almost instantly when we laid hands on these contracts and prayed for them. So we were very active in taking the business mountain, and uh, GM was definitely the beneficiary of it. And oddly, unbeknownst to them, they became one of the biggest mission organizations because they were funding our missions trips. So when we go to Korea, when we go to China, um, we had a whole network built in. And uh, it's interesting, too, because they forbid us to use the company intranet to promote ourselves, but the Muslims, the Hindus, any other religion or what they termed affinity group were allowed to use those resources, but we weren't allowed to use the resources. But uh, God moved in a mighty way over those years, and these groups are still going strong, and they're still meeting worldwide. And so just wanted to give you a quick snapshot of that was just the business mountain that we were assigned to. And so wherever you find yourself on any of these mountains, I, I think you can see the influence and the impact that you can make because the enemy is running roughshod. And so it's our job to dethrone him from each one of these power centers. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ron. It reminds me of a time I was in Russia and our host... I was there with about 80 different pastors, and our host was taking us into an area that was known for um, uh, a black market, and uh, it was, it was uh, kind of a sketchy place. And um, I remember one of the pastors there, a, a woman, was complaining, why are you taking us into such a dark place? I want you to just think about that for a minute. You got 80 pastors who represent what? The light. Why would you take us to such a place where we could be hurt? Where the thing is, is we're to invade. If we escape these places, we're going to lose it in darkness. So we need more Christians in arts and entertainment, more Christians in business, more Christians in education and helping families, and in the government, and media. Would you say we need more righteous people in civil government? Okay, so, so that's the concept. Let's go back to the video, and let's continue on to see uh, what our founding fathers considered. Ooh, did I do that? Okay. To operate in, and one of, the, one of the easiest ways to do that is at least by voting. Now, voting is very significant, but it's something that a lot of people don't tend to garden through voting. As a matter of fact, as you look at, at something like Los Angeles, and you take Los Angeles, one of the largest cities in the nation, and the mayor of Los Angeles announced that he had been elected with 2.9% of the adult vote in the city. Oh my goodness, 2.9%? There's a lot more people that could have taken care of the garden of Los Angeles, and you consider the policies they have and so much that's out there. Even in Texas, uh, the, the city of Houston, uh, the mayor of Houston is 
The population of Houston is such that if you're the mayor of Houston, there are 26 states, individual states in the United States, who have less population than the population of Houston. So being the mayor of Houston is like being a governor in 26 states, and the mayor of Houston is elected with 6% of adults voting. So one of the easy things we can do to tend the garden in the area of government is to be involved in elections, and that's local elections and, and county elections and state elections and federal elections. But there's more to it than that. There's more that we can learn about the process, and there's more that we can do in the process. And this is where a knowledge of constitutional process is important, a knowledge of American history is important. The more educated and informed you are, the more effective you are, and the more you can make a difference in the system. So let's go to the American founding. When you look at the American founding, and you look at what these guys did in creating their constitution. And by the way, there's 5,600 years of recorded human history. And when you look at that, a question to ask is, okay, they created a government, but what's the average length of a constitution in the history of the world? And history tells us 17 years. The constitution we got from these guys is now over 200 years old. It is the longest ongoing constitution in the history of the world. Every year on Constitution Day, we set another world's record. We've set so many world's records on stability, we don't even think about it anymore. It's natural, normal to us. But the question is, okay, Everybody had access to the same set of ideas they had in their day because they were political writers. You have millions of books. You have thousands of years of history. You have a lot of political writers. Where did they get the ideas that created our government to be so different? And that question was asked by political science professors at the University of Houston who said, why don't we go back and collect writings from the founding era and see who they quoted? Because if we can find out who they quoted, we'll know who's important to them. So they did that. The results were released in this study called The Origins of American Constitutionalism. They went back and found those 15,000 writings they thought were representative, and as they went through them, they found 3,154 direct quotes out of those writings. They said, now, let's find out where that quote originated. And so it took them 10 years, but they tracked every single quote back to its original source, and at the end of 10 years, they released the report, and they said, what we now know is the number one most cited individual in the American founding was a French philosopher by the name of Baron Charles Montesquieu. In 1750, he wrote a two-volume set called The Spirit of Laws that was used heavily by the Founding Fathers. They quoted from him frequently. The number two most cited individual in the American founding era was Justice William Blackstone, English judge who wrote the commentaries on the Constitution. Four-volume set. It's a great book. They cited it regularly. Thomas Jefferson said that American attorneys read Blackstones like Muslims read the Koran. So that was a big book to them. The number three most cited individual was John Locke in 1690. He did a, a book called The Two Treatises of Civil Government. In those two treatises, by the way, it's a little book, less than an inch thick, 400 pages long. He references the Bible more than 1,500 times to show the preparation of civil government. So if you think the Bible doesn't say much about government or doesn't refer to it, read that book from 1690. That's got a lot in it. So these are the three most cited individuals, but what surprised them was the number one most cited source out of all sources was the Bible. 34% of all the quotes they looked at from the founding era came out of the Bible. That goes to the concept of biblical citizenship. They used the Bible to help create a form of government that's now the most stable government in the world, and it was built on these concepts and ideas from the Bible. So there is grounds for us knowing and being involved biblically. Now, when you look at the document that they did, this document, the Declaration of Independence, starts out with 161 words that gives forth six principles of government. After those six principles of government, they then give you 27 grievances showing how those principles have been violated, 
And then at the end, they have a resolve. They say that, that we here, we mutually pledge each other our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor, and they were doing this with a reliance on divine providence. So that's the closing part. But let's go back to the 161 words. Four of those six principles of government are pretty simple. They start by saying there is a divine creator. Then they say, you know, the divine creator has given us a fixed moral law. Then they say he gives us inalienable rights, or what we would call natural rights sometimes, but inalienable rights. And the purpose of government is to protect the rights that God has given us. Now, if you take this, let me just take the second one for a minute, that he's established a fixed moral law. In the declaration, they called it the laws of nature, nature's God. Let me just take one example of how that these, this dual phrase, in other words, there's the laws of nature, what we see in what God created, and there's the laws of nature's God, which is written down in the scriptures. Let me just take the area of self-defense for just a minute. If you take the area of self-defense, it's interesting to see how the founding fathers framed this as an inalienable right that came from God that reflected the laws of nature and nature's God. If you take John Adams, John Adams said, resistance to sudden violence for the preservation not only of my person, my limbs, and my life, but of my property is an indisputable right of nature. Oh, there's nature, there's the laws of nature. He said, which I never surrendered to the public by the compact of society in which perhaps I could not surrender if I would. This is a God-given right. I can't give it up. He said the maxims of the law and the precepts of Christianity are precisely coincident in relation to this subject. Now, he says the law and Christianity. So that's the laws of nature and the laws of the God who created nature, which we find in the Bible. So he finds self-defense being part of both. And yeah, if we look in the Bible, we can point to Exodus 22.2 as a verse on self-defense. We can point to two passages in the book of Nehemiah. We can point to passages in the Gospel of Luke. So there's lots there on self-defense. Now, James Wilson, who was a founding father who signed the Declaration and the Constitution and was on the original Supreme Court and started the first law school in America and actually wrote the first law books, his, his lectures, he said the same thing. Notice how he said it. He says, the great natural law of self-preservation cannot be repealed or superseded or suspended by any human institution. This came from God and nobody can take it away from us because it came from God. He says, the right of the citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves shall not be questioned. You can't even get close to challenging that because that's a God-given right. He says, every man's house is deemed by the law to be his castle and the law invests him with the power and places on him the duty of the commanding officer of his house. All right, now, grab this. He said, your house is your castle, and if it's your castle, you're the commanding officer of your house. You have a duty to defend your castle, and that's why he said, every man's house is his castle, and if anyone be robbed in it, it shall be esteemed his own default and negligence. In other words, my house is my castle. If I get robbed in my castle, it's not the police's fault for not being there. It's my fault for not defending it. God put it in my hands. So this is the phrase that we sometimes hear called the castle doctrine. I have no duty to retreat in my home. That's a God-given right, comes out of the scriptures, comes out of the law of nature. You find it in nature, if you attack the home of any creature in nature, they're gonna defend that home, they're gonna defend their young and their property and their life. That's a law of nature and it's a law of nature's God. But the castle doctrine we hear associated with this, we need to go back and understand where that castle doctrine came from. It is a biblical concept, but it's not limited just to the Second Amendment. I wanna take you back to a guy named James Otis. James Otis was a founding father to the founding fathers. Uh, a number of the big name founding fathers, John Adams and Sam Adams and John Hancock, they were mentored by this man right here. He was a great attorney. He was in the years leading up to the American Revolution. And one of the most notable things he did was an argument in front of the British courts in 1761 here in America. 
1761 here in America, it dealt with what were called writs of assistance. Now, we don't really know what that is today because we don't study it much. This is super, super important because a writ of assistance was very much like a search warrant, except it was blank. There was nothing filled in on it. So what happens is, if I'm a British official and I say, I want a writ of assistance, I'm going to your house. I walk into your house with a blank search warrant and I start going through all the closets and cupboards and I pull out all the drawers and I look under all the mattresses and I keep looking till I find something that I think is illegal. And once I find it, then I will fill out that search warrant and say, this is what I was looking for. I was looking for whatever you had over here in the third drawer down and, and, and the chest of drawers. And then I fill it out and I go give it to a judge and said, I found something illegal in his home. And the judge says, well, go arrest him. He had something illegal. That writ of assistance allowed anybody to come into your home at any point in time and look for anything that they might consider to be illegal, whether they actually knew something was there or not. So what happened was he argued against this in the courts. This is what he told the judges. He said, I will to my dying day oppose with all the powers and faculties God has given me all such instruments as slavery and villainy as the writ of assistance is. To him, there was nothing more low than those writs of assistance. So he's arguing against it to the British courts, and he's a British attorney. He said, it is the worst instrument of arbitrary power and is destructive of liberty and the fundamental principles of law. One of the most essential rights is the freedom of one's house. A man's house is his castle. These writs totally annihilate these rights. Now, notice this phrase, a man's house is his castle. This is where it gets used in American history. This is where it pops up. A lot of the other founding fathers quoted it later, but it goes back to this argument right here. A man's house is his castle. He said, it's a power that places the liberty of every man in the hands of every petty officer. In other words, any government bureaucrat can now come in and take my liberty away. My house is no longer my castle. Who, who may reign secure in his petty tyranny and spread terror and desolation around him. Both reason and the Constitution are against such writs. Now, I mentioned that he had a huge impact on a number of founding fathers, and one was a young John Adams who saw all the arguments that went with this, because this was British policy at the time. It was being done by the British, but John Adams heard this. A man's house is his castle, and he thought about that for the next 15 years leading up to the American Revolution, and as we got close to the Revolution, this is what John Adams recalled looking back. He said that regarding that 1761 case, he said American independence was then and there born. Where? In that courtroom when he argued that a man's house is his castle. Every man in the crowded audience went away, as I did, ready to take arms against writs of assistance. This kind of tyranny we won't tolerate. There and then was the first scene of the first act of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there where the child independence was born. In 15 years, namely in 1776, he grew up to manhood and declared himself free. So he's saying everything we did in American independence movement goes back to the writs of assistance in 1761, which was based on the doctrine that every man's home is his castle. Now, let's take that concept for a bit, that a man's home is his castle. And it's interesting that when you look at several amendments in the Constitution, remember, amendments in the Constitution are given to protect God-given rights. This is the Constitution saying, government, you can't touch these rights. They come from God to us. And so when you look at the Second Amendment, we talked about that, that's the castle doctrine. You have the right to defend your home and your property. You have your right to defend life. We don't have to back away from that. That's a God-given right that God gives us in the laws of nature and nature's God. So that's a man's house as a castle, but let's go to the Third Amendment for a minute because the Third Amendment seems a little unusual. It, it deals with the quartering of British troops in private homes. 
When the British were over here, we'd never needed the British military before. We did all of our own fighting. And suddenly, we find ourselves in the American Revolution with 25,000 soldiers at a time coming to America. They don't have a place to stay because there's not British forts here. So they start putting British soldiers in the homes of private citizens. And they say, ma'am, uh, we're here in Boston. You take four of these soldiers, mister. You take these eight. Uh, ma'am, you take these seven. And suddenly, we're quartering troops in our homes. Now, this is a real problem from the standpoint of, of man's home as his castle, which is why we have the Third Amendment of the Constitution that says you can't quarter military troops in private homes. But it's not just military troops. Remember the concept that's underlying all this. What's underlying this is a man's home is his castle. We don't let government come into our castle and start doing what they want. And that doesn't matter whether it's with defense or with our own property, stepping into our homes, making it like the government's home. You'll find in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 24, there's this passage, very interesting. This goes back to the castle doctrine. It says, when you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, so I'm making a loan to my neighbor, I'm gonna get collateral from him, do not go into that man's house to get what was offered to you as a pledge. In other words, don't go collecting the collateral by going into his house. Stay outside his house and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. I don't even go, get to go into my neighbor's house to pick up collateral that he's putting down on a loan. I stay outside his house and he brings it to me. Why is that? Because a man's house is his castle. This is a biblical teaching. That's why over the castle, the, the parents are in charge of the children, not the government's in charge of children, the parents are because it's our castle. So this is part of the Third Amendment, even if you look at the Fourth Amendment. Fourth Amendment, very interesting. Fourth Amendment says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. This is all about writs of assistance. Now notice what it says here. If you read that, if I just read that and don't think about the modern era, if I just read it for what it says, I'm gonna say, you know what? IRS audits and bureaucratic agency searches of my receipts or papers, you can't do that. IRS can't demand to audit me. Here's why. Because what does it say? It says, you cannot search my papers. That would be my check stubs. That'd be my business receipts. You can't search my papers unless you have a warrant issued by a judge on probable cause, somebody has to swear to a judge that, yep, I saw him and he's got all sorts of corrupt stuff in his books. Somebody has to swear to a judge, probable cause, then they have to do it on oath or affirmation. They're swearing under, under the, the law of perjury. If they're telling a lie, then they're in trouble. And it has to particularly describe the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. In other words, if the IRS wants to do an audit on me, they have to say, we have uh, a warrant from a judge. These are the witnesses that saw you do illegal things with your books, and we want to see check stub number 478 through 941. That's what they got to do. They can't just come in and search my papers because my house is my castle. That's a biblical doctrine, and that's why when you look at the Bill of Rights and the scope and reach of government, because you remember back at the beginning, God gives certain jurisdictions to each form of government. There's only certain things they can do. But you know what? If we as Christians don't understand that, We'll let those lines get all melted. The government will get into doing stuff the family should do or that the church should do. Everything gets mixed up. So biblical citizenship starts with understanding biblical lines of jurisdiction and even our own history. So a man's house is his castle. That's where we get the due process and the, the right to privacy we have in the Constitution. All the stuff is in there and it comes out of the castle doctrine, which is a biblical doctrine. It's part of the laws of nature, nature's God, which is what the Declaration guarantees to each of us. So there is indeed a biblical responsibility and even a biblical mandate 
for us to be active and informed and aware citizens in all that goes on around us with civil government. Wow, how many of you knew any of that stuff? <laughs> Amen. There's so much in the Constitution to protect our rights, and many of us are completely unaware of it. And if we are ignorant of it, then those in government that are opposing biblical principles will take them away, and there'll be tyranny. So this is why we're doing it. Uh, we're in a time where uh, it's questionable as to where our government's headed. And so we want to reclaim and keep this Constitution. It's interesting, the number one quoted reference for our Constitution was the Bible. And the normal Constitution of any country in any land throughout history was just about 17 years. So this Constitution's lasted over 200 years. It's a sound form of government because it's based on God's form of government and uh, we need to uphold it and we need to keep it. Amen? And I, I didn't realize how many of the amendments are based off of the one principle that my home is my castle and what I have in my home the government can't come in and take. So uh, there's a lot of different stories right now where IRS or different government committees have take, come into people's homes, taken their stuff, even... Uh, police searches in cars and, and so forth. So you, we need to understand the laws and what our Constitution upholds. Anybody got anything you'd like to add to what you just saw? Maybe some stories, some things you've seen? Yeah, Tina. Well, right, right, right. Uh, you have a contract by which you are legally abiding in that home, and it is, if you will, leased, or, or you're making payments on it, and I think that constitutes ownership. Anybody want to chime in on that? We got any mortgage people? That's a good point. Anything. You know, that's a great point. I mean, how many of these things, back then when you bought land and you bought property, that deed was yours. Um, but there's so many different taxes. We're going to get into this more and you're going to see how these taxes never should have been allowed to the, to the rate we're paying taxes. That's actually unconstitutional too. Um, someone said your name's on the deed, and, I, and I, I would think that would hold up in a court of law as far as deed. But how many of you know that government can come in and take you, seize your land because they want it, and they'll come up with, what do you call that? I forget what that's called. Imminent domain. Yeah. Now, how many of you know that though we have a constitution, there are many corrupt things where people do what they want to do, and you become victims? right? But if enough of us will fight, right? The, the main thing, the reason for the American Revolution was because Britain was invading 
and demanding of the Americas British control going into their homes and properties and so forth, especially with that writ that uh, they opposed. That was the catalyst to break away from Great Britain because of its tyranny. We're living under greater tyranny now than they were when they caused the American Revolution. So we got to get back there. Uh, CJ, you had your hand up. I'm sorry. Anybody else got something to say? Let's talk. Uh, okay, we'll start here and I'll go that way. I'm going to give you a mic so everybody oh. can hear. So with the seven mountain manda mandate um, to take over these areas in society, is this going to become increasingly harder as we get more towards the last days? That's a great question. You want to chime in? No? Okay. <laughs> Anything seven, I'm, I'm going to this it's guy. The days are supposed to get darker and darker, correct? The days are supposed to get darker and darker, which makes the light shine brighter and brighter. I think we have to reconsider our eschatology, okay? We've been living under the tyranny of an antichrist in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation in its title is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've spent more time focusing on and giving in, this is a great analogy to our own government, giving in to the tyranny of an antichrist when in fact the church is, God is coming for what kind of a bride? A glorious bride, a victorious bride. And so let me ask you this, was Israel victorious during the plagues of Egypt? Yeah, they left Egypt, they went through the tribulation of those plagues, okay, and much of the book of Revelation repeats the same plagues. They went through the tribulation of those plagues with all the money that they had lost for 400 years. Do you remember in one night they collected all the money and all the gold and all the funds that they had lost as slaves and they left victorious out of the place of bondage? So, I don't want to give up on America too soon. So, yes, it's going to get more and more evil, but... Sin abounds, but what's the equation of the Bible? Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. You can't forget that, okay? So I would say we, we occupy until he comes. Will he find faith in the earth? Yes. So that's my answer. I had some, here. I'm going to give you a mic so everybody can hear you. Do you want to do that? Yeah, that's Thank you. Does this have any uh, ties or cahoots with the national, uh, Christian nationalists? Is it uh, all about that? It's a that? great question. Okay. Um, I don't know where you folks stand, but I'm your pastor, so I'll tell you where I stand. I am opposed to Christian, Christian nationalism. I think one of the worst things you can have is the church in bed with the government. I don't believe in Christian nationalism. I do not believe that America is special above any other nation. God doesn't have a covenant with America. And I, so uh, what has God got? A covenant with mankind 
through Jesus Christ. It is our job to redeem every nation and bring every nation to Christ. We're not trying to run the government. We're trying to bring the uh, gospel to people. And people are going to impact the decisions they make in the government. Does that make sense? We're about changing hearts. If you change people's hearts, that will impact the governments and the seven mountains. All right. Yeah, you did, CJ. Okay, so how many of you have heard of martial law before, right? That's when the government says, uh, we don't care what your rights or whatever. We're in such a state that we have to uh, call for martial law where the military will take over and will run the country and your household and everything else despite what you say for the good of the country. I would have to say we were close to that during COVID. How many of you know that? I think that was a trial run. And I think many people have said, man, this, this got out of whack too quick. So um, some may say, and you can look in history where some may say, well, there, we're already under martial law. It was brought about at this time or that time and so forth. Um, I don't think that there's been an official martial law dictate, and I don't think we're under it, but it could happen at any minute. And that's when informed citizens are going to have to say, no, we don't want this. Um, so, go ahead, Judy. I, I think the bottom line is that people mean they need to understand where all this evil was perpetrated from back in 1871. In 
And so that's going to impact it. I'm going to give a little teaser for next week. I believe that we failed the Constitution the day after we ratified it. Next week I'll be talking about that. We contradicted the, the Constitution itself with the agreement that we made with the southern states concerning slavery. And uh, come next week to hear about that. And I think that was the beginning of the downfall of the American plan. And uh, we failed uh, uh, seven million people that were in this United States and not even considering them as people. And so at that point, we immediately failed the Constitution. But from there on, it's, it's been, right, failing. We've got to work at getting back what it says uh, without, and it's usually through deals. That's what failed the Constitution, deals, deals and deals. Who else has got a hand? Someone else had a hand up. Yes. Um, one, one quick point. I don't know if we're going to get into this, um, but... Uh, to Judy's point, doing your homework, when CJ asked about martial law, there's a doctrine from the 1500s called the Mandenberg Confession, or also known as the Doctrine of Lesser Magistrates. And basically the principle is when a, a lesser magistrate tries to overrule a greater magistrate, you have a duty and the, um, the right to oppose that. So basically, as Christians, our magistrate is God himself, and so anytime a lesser government would try to impose something on us, we have the right to rebel and go to the higher magistrate and ignore what the lower magistrate is trying to legislate against us. So just a point, uh, and it's from the 1500s. You can look it up. And it, that goes right back to Scripture, doesn't it, yeah. Pastor Ron, where, in fact, uh, Peter and John were told by the magistrates you cannot preach the name of Jesus. And they decided we will obey God and not man. And they went right back out into the streets and preached. Now they were willing to take the wrath of that civil government for what they were doing, but they were appealing to God. Last one of the night is Eric Eide in the back. Tell us your background. Uh, I was a police officer in Detroit for 25 years, and I did serve many warrants. There's a checks and balance system, and that checks and balance system comes down to the very beginning Constitution that says, we the people. When we close our eyes and stick our heads in the sand, those checks and balances go away. We vote in judges in order to, to do many of these things, search warrants, and to have laws change. There are judges who we vote for, who we vote for or don't vote for, that sign off on these things. But what does 1 Corinthians 14 tell us? We fight not against flesh and blood. There are things moving around in the spirit if we're not voting through the Spirit, if we're not doing our background, like Judy said, through the Spirit, this darkness is going to continue because there are checks and balances there to come down to our responsibility as citizens and as Christians to do our part. We don't battle against these, these people that are in the government. We're battling against what's influencing them in the government. And 
Tina, you had a question about the, the search warrant. Standing. You have to have standing. The judge has to have that authority to make that decision to sign that search warrant. The officer has to have a probable cause for those search warrant or to do anything to when you violate the law. He has to have those things in place. We have standings as sons and, and, and daughters of God, don't we? We have standing that we have not taken. We have not taken it. And we have to take that back. Amen. 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 Praise God. So, yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's continue on next week. I'm encouraging you to come back. And uh, we're going to take a look at uh, the impact of slavery on this nation and the impact on, on the Constitution um, and we're going to look at how we can get back to biblical principles that will bring righteousness back into the land. I conclude with this. America has been in this situation at least on two different, maybe three different occasions. And when we were at the brink of losing this nation and this nation failing, there were major awakenings and revivals that God brought that changed the course of American history, that righted or attempted to right the wrongs that this nation was in. And so our help comes from the Lord. Amen? That's where we're going back to. We're going back to a biblical basis, and we're making stands on a biblical stand no matter what mountain you're a part of or no matter what mountain you move with, we're making biblical stands and having our standing on Christ and we are earnestly praying for another great awakening. Amen? Amen. Stand with me tonight. Father God, I thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for teaching and educating us. And Lord, thank you for founding fathers that saw Scripture and uh, the power within nature and nature's God to establish the principles of government over family, civil government, and church that together, Lord, these powers working together can have a healthy and caring society. I pray for this nation to get back to its founding principles and Father God to right what's wrong by the power of the Holy Spirit through your people in prayer. So use us, Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Greet one another. I want to remind